Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I it felt, felt, felt I feel right. right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely. This week, we are presenting stories about those moments when everything changes and suddenly you face possibilities you've never even considered before. This episode is A Whole New World. A Whole New World. <laughs> ah, I love that song. Are we in copyright <laughs> violation right now? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody report us. Uh, I'm excited for this episode. For me, uh, the last time that I really entered a whole new world was when I started working for Story Collider because I had never really known any scientists before. And so Mm -hmm. this was very new for me. And Uh, and it went brilliantly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as a journalist in journalism school, they always tell you you should be writing at a fifth grade level when you write news. To be accessible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when I started working with scientists, I did not know that asking them to explain their work at a fifth grade level would just break their hearts, minds, and souls. Oh, Oh, man. But I know, like, you and I have both entered different worlds. Like, for me, it was when I left science. But then also, like, we've both moved and like been in new countries. And I was just thinking about how we can always laugh about it in retrospect um, because it's always about like the culture clash and like how our expectations proved to be a mismatch with what actually happened. And I, I really love how the same idea, like, and then everything changes can either sound amazing or just terrible. <laughs> Sometimes somehow both at the same time. Exactly, right? (laughs) But either way, we get good stories out of it. Right, right. Should we listen to our first one now? Yes. All right. Our first story is from Sean Bearden. It was recorded in November 2019 at Hawaiian Bryans in Honolulu. This was at a show presented in partnership with the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. How's everybody doing? Good to hear. All right, so my story starts out, the year is 2005. I'm 19 years old, and I'm in Elmira, New York, sitting in this small, tiny, stinky prison cell. Um, It's not exactly where I thought my life would be at that point. Um, 
I'm set to be there to 2012. And if you remember anything from the early 2000s, um, there was this Mayan prophecy saying the world was going to end. And it was all I could think about. But it felt like my world had already ended. So let me take you back a little bit. In 2004, I'm from Buffalo, New York. I'm at a gas station. I walk out. Two men approach me. One of them strikes me. I was concealing a pistol at the time. I pulled it out and I shot him. He survived. I got caught and went to jail. So back to 2005, I'm in this uh, prison cell and I'm just accepting it. You know, this journey is going to be a struggle, but I just got to deal with it. That's all I can do is deal with the moment. And I'm really not thinking about the future. The only thing I can think about in terms of getting out of prison is how am I going to get another gun? Because it's going to be dangerous. That's just the state of mind I'm in. But here now I'm in this uh, reception prison and they do a lot of tests on you there. So they give us an uh, IQ test and I knew it was an IQ test when they gave it to me. So being bored later, sitting in my cell, I write to my counselor and I just want to know how did I do on that IQ test. And they write me back and I open the, the piece of paper and it says you got a 99 on your IQ test. And I was like, 99? I got one point lower than average? Like it hit me in my heart. and. I just, I, I didn't know, like, I knew I had scored much higher than that when I was an adolescent, and it felt like I broke my brain. Like, all those years of partying in my teen, I, I don't know, something must have just went wrong. And I never really cared about education. I, I wasn't a good student at all. Like, I went to school just to, because you made me, you know, that was it. Never cared. And, uh, you know, it's becoming apparent now because my main means of uh, communicating with people is through letters and I, I can barely convey my thoughts through letters. You know, I'm not illiterate, but I struggle. Uh, I can't spell at all. I literally asked somebody, how do you spell prison while I was in prison? And <laughs> they laughed at me. <laughs> and I was, you know, it's, it's, it's funny in retrospect, right? Like, wow, I didn't even know how to spell the, the place I was in. But, um, it, you know, I just, I kind of accepted it. It's just, it is what it is. I'm not too focused on that, right? Like, it's just, I can't really do anything. So moving forward, um, I'm, I got my family and friends kind of in the picture and, uh, my mother's there. My father's there. Uh, my aunt writes me and I remember she tried like saying, why don't you go to college or something? You know? And I was like, I'm worried about getting stabbed. I'm not going to college. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't help me here. And my brother's trying to influence me in other ways. So he sends me two books. Uh, I remember, it was Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, and the other one was Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. I read The Dust Jackets, and I was like, I don't understand why he would send me books like that and threw them in the corner. <laughs> Wanted nothing to do with them. And uh, that was it. And eventually, I get moved out of this reception prison, and I go to a maximum security prison because I'm a violent felon. They put you in maximum security. And the first cell they put me into, the guy next to me, he knocks on the wall, so I, you know, go to the gate, and I'm like, what's up? And he says, what are you here for? How long are you going to be here? It's a common question in prison. So I say, I'm here for shooting somebody, and I got eight years. And I kind of thought I'd get, like, a little respect out of that or something, maybe. And he was like, eight years? Eight years is nothing. He's like, I did eight years three times already. I got 25 to life. I'll probably have to do it again because the parole board won't let me go home. And it was the first time I ever heard somebody speak so insignificantly about time. Like, eight years is nothing? And in my head, I'm like, eight years feels like the rest of my life. 
like I don't know even how to relate to that, but I just said, okay, whatever, you know, and time goes on. And I don't know if you know much about maximum security prison, but it's pretty boring. So uh, <laughs> eventually I open up those books and I actually really get into this pop science nonfiction um, books that keep coming out. And, uh, you know, I read it and that's how I'm passing the time in myself. So about a year goes by. And then uh, 2006, I get moved to a medium security prison. And I'm excited at first because I know I'm going to be close to home. My hometown is uh, Buffalo, New York. I'm going to be an hour outside of it. People can come visit me much easier. It'll be great. But when I get to the prison, medium security is much different than maximum security. You don't live in cells anymore. You live in dormitories. And I was in a dormitory with 60 men and I lived in like a cubicle. And when I slept that night, you could just walk into the cubicle and assault me. And it was very scary. I was I wanted that cell back because I felt safe in my cell. But eventually I realized most of the people in the medium security prisons are going home very soon. Uh, five years or less. And many of them are going home within a year. So a lot of people are talking about going home. They're trying to prepare for the future. And, you know, because this is a lower security prison, they have rehabilitative programs there to help people. And I start working as a facilitator in these uh, programs. And that's my job at the prison. And I meet uh, a good friend, Rahim. Now, Rahim was from my hometown. So we naturally just have the, the casual conversations, exchanging names. Like, you know Booby? Yeah, I know Booby. Man, how you know Booby? I used to sell Booby Wee. What you talk about? You know what I mean? <laughs> just those type of things, right? So we became real good friends. And I, I respected him a lot because he was trying to be an intellectual while he was in prison. And there weren't too many people doing that at the time. Like he wanted to become a businessman, get out. He didn't want to repeat the cycle. And he liked to debate. You know, we had nothing but to listen to the sounds of our own voices. So we debated a lot. Sometimes it was more of an argument. But, you know, he I could bounce ideas off him. You know, I was still into the, the pop science nonfiction books and he liked hearing about what I was reading. So we would go back and forth. And, uh, you know, at this time I'm reading a lot, but I'm starting to realize I want more like this isn't enough. And I come to the realization like I'm just going to have to open up textbooks at some point. But I just have this feeling of I want credit for it. And there's really not a whole lot of options for, you know, getting college degrees in prison. But explaining this all to my mother on a visit one day, she goes home and does some research and she finds that Ohio University has an independent and distance learning program. It's not necessarily for prisoners, but prisoners could take it. And I would get a real associates and nobody would know the difference. It would be the same things if you went there. So I tell her, well, send me the, the brochure, the course catalog. I'll take a look and let's see. So I open it up and they got all the courses that I'm interested in. They had math courses, all kinds of science courses. They had physics courses. And at this time, I'm reading about like quantum mechanics and things like that. And all I really know is it's weird, but I want to know more. And uh, so I'm like, all right, maybe physics is the route to go, you know, not really even knowing much about it. But of course, you can't just jump into physics, right? And uh, I started out with two gen eds. I remember they were intro to sociology and the other one was American government. And open the book, start reading. I love it. But I quickly realized I don't have study skills. Like I never tried in school at all. The only thing I would do is what I needed to do to get you to leave me alone. And now here I am trying to get A's. And I realized I never tried to get an A in my life, like literally never attempted it. And I want it, but I don't know how. 
and I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. But I keep trying. And at this time, I really haven't committed too much to it, right? So if I quit, it's not like I, it's not a big deal to me, you know? I was like, I don't know. I'll just see what happens. And then uh, around this time, that uh, author I'd mentioned earlier, Malcolm Gladwell, he's one of my favorite authors at this time. And uh, he releases his book, Outliers. So when I get my hands on it, I run back to my cubicle, lay down in my very uncomfortable bed, and start reading. And uh, I get to this chapter where he's making this point about practical intelligence and how it's different than the general intelligence that the IQ test tests for. You know, that kind of uh, intelligence is something you're born with. You can't really change it. But practical intelligence is something that you have to develop. Nobody's born with it. It teaches us how to navigate complex social situations and overcome obstacles as they occur when we want to achieve the things that we hope to achieve. And reading this, I just realized I have zero practical intelligence. If I hit a wall, I say, well, I tried and I go the other way. You know, as long as I got an excuse to say why I didn't succeed, that's enough for me. But as I'm reading it, I'm like, all right, I guess I got to just start working on this. Like, I really got to start working on this practical intelligence idea. I can't just give up so easy. And something comes to mind that a, a relative had said to me one time about physics to say, if you go into physics, it's a PhD or don't bother. So I say right then and there, I'm going to get a PhD. <laughs> I literally haven't finished my gen edge yet and I'm struggling. <laughs> but I'm like, all right, I'm on the path to the PhD in physics. Let's do this. So I keep going and I'm getting a little bit better. You know, I'm learning how to study. I'm learning how to write essays. I, I'm conveying my ideas and they're giving me A's and I complete the course. I get A's in both, but I really didn't feel successful. It, it didn't feel successful at all. And I just like, well, they're probably just giving the, the poor little prisoner an A and make them feel better. Right. So I keep going, doing courses and whatnot. And then I get to Calc 1 and I'm taking calculus and I was excited to take calculus. And I literally just only did calculus for three weeks, blew through Calc 1 in three weeks. And I tell my mother this on a visit and she's extremely impressed. And I'm like, why are you impressed? I did it only one thing for three weeks. Like, that's not impressive. Like anybody could do that if they really put their mind to it, right? And she's like, what are you talking about, you know? <laughs> and as I tell more people, they're like, well, this is not normal. I was like, really? And I was like, maybe I do have a skill. Like maybe I could do something with this when I get out of prison. And this is where it takes off. Once I get there, I'm in calculus, I'm in physics, I'm loving it. I'm taking all of these courses. Years are going by. And then around 2010, my good friend Raheem, he's leaving the prison. He gets released. So he stops by my cubicle to say goodbye, and we exchange some words. But the one thing that he says that really stands out, he says, when I see you on the street, you better be on your way to being a physicist or whatever it is you want to be. Otherwise, I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> and I was like, yo, man, what's the problem? Like, what did I do? <laughs> But he was joking, you know, and I, I kind of took it as an insult. Like, don't you see me sitting here all the time? Like, I, I'm always studying at my desk. Like, that's the only thing I know how to do. I can't quit at this point. And he's like, well, yeah, if that's the case, then when I see you, you better be on that path. Right. And I said, OK, and just kept moving forward. You know, I can't really focus on Raheem. I'm still in prison, so I got to focus on my situation. So few months go by and then one of Raheem's Muslim brothers comes to my cubicle. I'm sitting there working on some, uh, I believe, physics uh, early in the morning. 
stops by and he says, hey, it's just down there at Muslim Services and the Iman told me that last night Raheem got murdered. And I was just, what? You know? And he's like, but you can't tell anybody. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what? And he's like, just drops this bomb on me. He's like, yeah, yeah nobody knows. I got to go inform people. Just don't tell anybody until it's on the news. And he walks away. So now I'm just sitting there and I have to internalize it. Like, whoa. And the only thing I could think of was, like, how did he let himself get murdered? Because I was like, we should be focused on a path. He had a path. Like, what did he do to allow that to happen to himself? And that's the only way that I could really see it in my mind. But I just have to, to just internalize it and keep moving forward. It's just it kind of gives me a little bit of a kick to say, you know what? I really have to, to focus on my path. So taking that, I say, you know what? I I should try to contact some schools before I get out. And I'm going back to Buffalo, so I contact the university at Buffalo trying to, to get accepted before I get released. And they're open to it. They say, this is great. You have great grades. We want you to come here. But we just need a letter from your parole officer so we can, you know, know that it's okay. So I say, all right, that shouldn't be a problem. So I write to parole and I say, hey, could you have a parole officer write me a letter so I can go to school? And they say, no. You don't have a parole officer because you haven't been paroled. And this is the first realization that like, oh, wait, maybe this won't be as easy as I thought. Right. But I say, all right, well, first thing I do when I get out of prison, I'm going to go handle that. So 2011, it's July, I get released. I actually get out a little bit earlier in that 2012 deadline because of the college work. And uh, I remember I got to pick my clothes. And I wanted to go home in at these blue shell toe Adidas and these matching uh, basketball shorts that were probably three sizes too big because my sense of fashion was stuck in like 2002. And <laughs> even when I'm walking out, the guard laughs at me. He's like, what is this kid wearing? But I'm like, peace, I'm out of here. <laughs> and then uh, so my mom picks me up and first thing you have to do is go straight to parole. So go to parole. It's kind of like, you know, they, they fingerprint you, they take some pictures, they make you take your clothes off, see if you got gang tattoos, things like that. And then they sit you down in a room and then it's basically, what's your plan? So I sit down with my parole officer and I say, I got a great plan. I intend to go to college to get a bachelor's in physics. Matter of fact, I've already been accepted. All you have to do is write the simple letter saying that that's okay. And his immediate response is absolutely not, not doing it. And I'm just like, what? You're like, who who comes in here asking to go to college? And you tell him, no, like, this can't be happening all the time. And he's like, I don't know you. You're a violent felon. You shot somebody. You might just go on that campus and hurt somebody. He's like, I'm not doing it. And he's like, so in the moment, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I just know, do what he tells you. So what am I supposed to do? He says, get a job. And getting a job as a felon is not easy. So the only job I can find is going to collections. I start working collections and I hate it. And at this time in my life, I'm sitting there just, this is not where I thought I would be. I was on a totally different path in my mind and none of it is panning out. And it's, these are when Raheem's words come back to me because he's not saying, you know, I don't think you'll do it. He's saying that, you know, people are constantly going to be pushing you off of this path. Like, there's going to be obstacle after obstacle. And he saw that when I didn't. I thought, you know, everybody will kind of embrace this because I'm trying to change my life around. And 
this is when I just say, you know what? I go back to that idea of practical intelligence to say, I got to stay on my path. Nobody's taking me off this path. I don't care if you won't write the letter now. He'll write it eventually. So just do what I do and the parole officer will come through. And he does. Instead of getting into the fall of 2011, I get in spring 2012. I stay out of trouble. So he has to write the letter. And then uh, I start courses. And I was very excited, but I was a little afraid. You know, I'm older. I think it was 26 at this time. And, uh, you know, I'm with these kids fresh out of high school. They're sharp. You're bright. You know, they have all these you know, ideas of what they want to do. They've been on this path. They never went to prison and had to struggle. But I realized that's my benefit. I have this discipline that they lack. You know, I've been sitting in a prison working on college work. Like, that's not easy to maintain that level of discipline in that environment. And on top of it, I realized I have this special skill. I have these distorted perceptions of time because I try not to think of time, you know, sitting in prison so long. And I can sit inside all weekend and study and it doesn't bother me. It's way better than being in a prison cell, right? (laughs) I like these kids want to go out and party. I'm like, I'm just happy not to be in prison, right? (laughs) So I do extremely well. And, you know, I keep going. I get A's. I end up getting invited to do research with Dr. Igor Zudish at the University of Buffalo. I end up getting my bachelor's in physics and applied mathematics. I win an NSF fellowship, which... I never thought would have happened. And uh, I get accepted to UC San Diego, become a Sloan scholar there. And I'm currently a PhD candidate with Dr. DeVentra and his group. And everything's going great. But to this day, I'm still working on my practical intelligence. I still struggle with just wanting to stop all the time. And I, I just bring myself back to those words of Raheem and just stay on my path. Thank you for listening. That was Sean Bearden. Sean is a PhD candidate in physics at UC San Diego, and he researches the application and development of a novel computing paradigm called MEM computing systems. Sean identifies as a non-traditional student. He went from dropping out of high school to receiving a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship and an Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Minority PhD Program Scholarship. To alleviate the stress he says is inevitably coupled with his graduate research, he enjoys training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu at the P5 Academy in San Diego. Well, as a fellow Ohio University graduate, I just want to say, go Bobcats. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, like that program that Sean talked about, that Ohio University ran, sounded so important. It's so valuable. And we know that education helps people have higher earning potentials, and particularly for incarcerated people, it's connected with dramatically lower rates of re-entering the prison system. And, you know, you think about, like, I think about the U.S. currently has something like 2.3 million people currently Mm -hmm. incarcerated. If you're looking for a place to learn more and think more about this particular topic, there's a 2019 report called Investing in Futures, Economic and Fiscal Benefits of Post-Secondary Education in Prison. We'll link to that in the episode notes. I am really excited for Sean. He is expecting to receive his Ph.D. this year in physics. Uh, and I also really like that in his story, he, he acknowledges a little bit of his privilege, too, of being able to participate in a program like that. And 
not everybody uh, in that situation is able to. So thank you, Sean, for sharing that story. Yeah. Um, if you are loving these stories about entering a whole new world, I have a couple I could recommend. I would Hit me. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I would highly recommend Jacqueline Trumbull's story uh, from right. last year. Jacqueline was a contestant on Ari's season of The Bachelor, if you're familiar, <laughs> as I am. I was going to say some of us are and some of us a little less so, but we support you, Aaron Barker. <laughs> but in any case, I think you agree with me that it's a whole new world. <laughs> Indeed. And Jacqueline and, found herself in a position where she had to choose between RA and science. Oh. So you can find out what she chooses. <laughs> nice. Any other recommendations? Also, I uh, recommend Cindy Joe's story from our loneliness episode. Uh, Cindy shared a story at our Fermilab show that was about becoming a particle accelerator operator for the first time and working in a workplace that was exclusively with men, mm-hmm. um, not having any female co-workers. So that's that's a whole world in of itself. So I highly recommend that one as well. I love the way you describe stories and I love how you have an encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> of our back catalog that we are putting to good use. <laughs> That's right, because we have our survey out now asking all of you to vote on your favorite stories for the past 10 years. And if you cannot remember the name of the storyteller or the episode, you can just describe it as best you can. And I will sort through my mental database (laughs) and figure it out. So far, I've been able to guess every single story that's been described in our survey. That's right. So vote and stump Aaron Barker. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, You can find our survey on our social media accounts, on Twitter and Facebook, as well as on our website if you go to more and then follow it down to our 10-year anniversary tab. Uh, We'll also be including it in the notes for this podcast episode. But if you really want to celebrate with us... Which you do. (laughs) Of course. We're going to have 10-year anniversary celebrations in all of our cities around the country and around the world. We have a few that have tickets on sale now, our Seattle show on March the 3rd, our St. Louis celebration on March 18th, and our D.C. party on April 8th. You can check that out at storyclider.org. And then there's another set of them coming up that will be posted soon. We'll have Atlanta on March 19th, Boston on April 22nd, and Cambridge, U.K. on April 23rd. And the grand finale, our big celebration, will be on May 12th here in Brooklyn. So join us. It is going to be amazing. Sorry, I just got so excited I had to interrupt. (laughs) I understand. It's very exciting. Come party with us. We would love to celebrate with you. And then you'll also hear even more amazing stories like the one that's coming up right now. That's right. Our next story today is from Victoria Manning. It was recorded in November 2019 at Fringe Bar in Wellington, New Zealand. The theme that night was crossing over. A few years ago, um, my brother was visiting. He was staying in our house. And uh, my brother is deaf, like me. And um, a a couple of years before this visit, he had got a cochlear implant. And he was in our kitchen washing the dishes. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) 
while having conversations with my small children who were behind his back. And this threw me. My deaf brother, like me, had spent his entire life, prior to getting a cochlear implant, only ever been able to communicate with people when looking directly at them. And here he was, communicating quite easily with my small children when they were not in his sight, sight line. Um, I love my brother dearly, but in that moment I felt very jealous. He had access to my children that I didn't have. He could connect with them in ways that I couldn't. He could exist with my children when they weren't in his sightline. And I wanted that. And this was a really difficult realisation for me because I had spent many years growing and developing a very strong deaf identity. I use sign language and I'm proud to be deaf. And I had a fear that if I got a cochlear implant, it would make me more hearing and somehow less deaf, and it would take part of my identity from me, it would take something from me. But seeing my brother access my small children in ways I couldn't and connect with them that way and seeing what was possible that overrode all my fears. So a cochlear implant is a high-tech electronic device. And there's an internal part which is surgically implanted and an external part that looks a lot like a hearing aid. And the external part picks up the sounds from the environment and processes them and sends those signals across the skin to the internal part. The internal part um, converts the sound signals into electrical pulses, and those electrical pulses are sent down a very, very fine, thin, flexible uh, tube that has been surgically Im implanted into the cochlea. The cochlea is that snail-shaped part of the inner ear, and those electrical pulses, they stimulate um, different locations of the cochlea that are responsible for different pitches. Um, I had a lifetime of only hearing through hearing aids, and for a profoundly deaf person like me, hearing aids amplify sounds to extreme levels and is distorted terribly. And then that distorted sound goes through the damaged parts of the ear. In contrast, a cochlear implant it uses different technology and it bypasses the damaged parts of the ear to send sound signals directly to the brain. As a very, very rudimentary example of the difference between a hearing aid and a cochlear implant, if before, when I could only hear through a hearing aid, if I was in a room with no background noise, completely silent, and someone was sitting directly in front of me so I could lip-read them as well. And that person said to me, cheese toast. I would maybe, if I was lucky, hear e or. That's it. 
with a cochlear implant, now someone says to me, cheese toast, I hear every single sound of every syllable. I hear cheese toast. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, having a lifetime of zero sound discrimination and then having a whole lot it took me several months to learn all these new sounds that I was experiencing. The day that they switched on my cochlear implant, one of the first sounds that struck me was uh, after a short time, the audiologist said, go outside and walk around and then come back. So we went outside and I was standing beside a busy road and I was wow, I could hear that the sound of a car coming towards you, it changes, and it's a different sound when the car's moving away from you. I was like, wow. And within hours, I was starting to understand speech without lip reading, which to me was just a miracle. And I learned that everything makes a noise. Even running your hand along a smooth surface makes a noise. So, yeah, sure enough, there was a lot of a time there where I keep running my hand across smooth surfaces. And I often had to ask people around me, what's that noise? What's that sound? And I remember being flabbergasted when I was told that the sound that I could hear was of an aeroplane flying overhead while I was inside our house with all the doors and windows closed. I can now hear the difference between SH and CH words. Who knew that taxi shits were actually taxi chits? <laughs> I can now converse on the phone for the first time in my life and somehow that's made me feel a bit more in control and independent. And I can have more deep and meaningful conversations with my friends and family. And a real key difference in my conversations with my friends and family is that before, with a hearing aid, I couldn't understand so much. It was, it was so hard. Um, it's like everything I heard was just to varying degrees, whether it was someone speaking close to me, someone speaking far away, or music. It was just shh. So I would often avoid engaging in conversations altogether. But of course there are times when you can't. And in those times when I couldn't avoid engaging in conversations, I would often end up pretending that I could understand and follow the conversation when I wasn't. And that always left me feeling really stink because I felt like I wasn't being honest with myself and I wasn't being honest with the people around me who were important to me. But I didn't have a solution. I didn't know what to do. Um, so now I'm able to have more deep and meaningful conversations with my friends and I'm also not pretending so much. I'm not feeling stink about myself so much. Um, another thing I really, really love is being able to have a conversation with my husband while giving him a back massage. <laughs> so overall, this um, 
experience of having so much more speech and sound discrimination, the effect on me is that I feel more engaged with the world around me. I feel more present and uh, obviously a greater affinity with my friends and family. And um, I'm able to relax more in hearing environments. So, although my cochlear implant gives me phenomenal speech and sound perception, I'm not hearing. I'm still deaf. Um, I guess a way to explain it is that I'm hearing through some sort of advanced robotics, and as advanced as they are, they don't function the same way that a hearing human ear hears. Background noise is still really hard. Um, and there are still times when sounds and words are a blur for me. And I have no sense of direction about where a sound has come from. One day, on my journey into the world of sound, I came across some music that captivated me. And I was at the time watching a movie, and in the movie it was about a folk singer, so there were lots of songs in the movie. And fortunately, it doesn't always happen, but fortunately in this movie, all of the song's lyrics were captioned. And reading the lyrics and hearing the song and the music at the same time had a profound effect on me. Um, I remember that there was a song about the death of Queen Jane. She'd been in labour for nine days and she begged her midwives and King Henry to cut the baby from her side. And hearing the lyrics and the music, I felt like I could hear Queen Jane's heartache and I could hear the agony in King, King Henry's refusal. And I found myself having these physical and emotional responses to the auditory stimulation that I was experiencing. My heart ached, and I cried. And I knew that I was crying not just because it was an extremely sad song and an overwhelming new experience, but because I'd been through such a struggle to make the decision to get a cochlear implant, and then having this emotional and physical response to something that sounded so amazing. I didn't expect that. Um, and it still surprises me now when I have a physical response or emotional response to, to music. In that particular movie, there were several songs, and I remember having several physical and emotional responses to, to this auditory stimulation. Um, my heart raced at one point, my breath got caught in my throat, and at one point I remember this wave of rapture went through my body, and I was like, whoa, what's that? And this was all in direct response to something I was hearing, and I had never experienced that before. It was completely new and overwhelming. So from that moment on, I had an intense desire to listen to more music. And uh, um, I spend every spare moment of my time now listening to music. I get so utterly excited and thrilled by 
the experience. When I catch up with my friends, all I want to talk about is the latest music I'm listening to, my obsessions, and um, I'm often found listening to music with a big smile on my face, and not because the song's a happy one. It's the, the pleasure of the experience. And I never imagined that. I never imagined having that physical response, having the experience of music washing over you and that rapture running through your body. Coming back to my children, who were the impetus of my decision to get a cochlear implant, they're a bit older now. And uh, when we are driving in the car, and they're in the back arguing, as they often do. I'm driving along with a big smile on my face because I can hear what they're saying to each other. I can hear how they talk to each other and those subtle tone changes they use on each other. And another very common scene in our family right now is me listening to music, big smile on my face, and the children come running and, Mama, it's too loud, turn it down, turn it down. <laughs> and it's been a few years now, but I really feel like here I am in my 40s and I'm just at the beginning. Victoria Manning. Victoria was raised in Lower Hutt and has been deaf since age four. Her first career was in psychology, but her strong sense of social justice and experience in the USA saw her gravitate towards advocacy roles. She led a five-year-long human rights complaint that resulted in the establishment of a telephone relay service, enabling deaf, hard-of-hearing, and speech-impaired people to access the telephone. She co-chaired the government's Disability Strategy Review Reference Group, and was the inaugural chairperson of the government's New Zealand Sign Language Board. One of Victoria's career highlights was being chosen to represent disabled New Zealanders at the United Nations for New Zealand's first reporting on its progress on implementing the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. She was given a Queen's Service Award for her services to the deaf and disabled communities in 2015. We are so grateful to Sean and to Victoria for sharing these amazing stories with us. Absolutely. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. We couldn't do this without the help of our Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, <laughs> Gastor Almonte, Daisha Herbulak, and Caridwin Roberts. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, which includes Zoe Saunders, John Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Hawaiian Bryans and Fringe Bar for hosting these shows. And to the magic carpet, which was the <laughs> underappreciated character in the Whole New World song. The real hero of the story, I think. No, but to everybody out there making sense of new possibilities and coping with change. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes 
ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.